0: Remember, the book of Daniel is primarily talking about the people of Israel in exile. It's talking about the times that they were in exile in Babylon in about 586 uh, BC. And we covered, if you remember, we covered some chapters uh, previously. We covered chapter 2, which was about the dream. Of Nebuchadnezzar and we covered chapter three which was about what was it about the youth in the fiery furnace and we covered chapter seven which was about the dream of Daniel and the dream of Daniel was sort of the one that was kind of the strangest one uh, talking about kind of the beasts and all the kind of stuff um, And so today, like I said, we're going to talk about the book of Daniel chapter 9. If I can get this to show up on the screen. There we go. Okay. Daniel chapter 9 is sort of a little bit different than the rest of... Uh, the book that we've been reading so far. So the book we've been reading so far is either talking about one of two things, either talking about a dream that somebody's having, or talking about uh, sort of some events of the people uh, in uh, like the three friends and Daniel. This uh, chapter is actually super famous uh, because it's talking about a very special um, confession or prayer that Daniel says. It's one of the most famous uh, prayers of confession that we have in the entire in the entire Bible. And like I was saying before, uh, the book of Daniel in general is talking about how to be faithful in a foreign land, how to be faithful in a place where, um, well, the faith is different than the faith that i am grown up with, the culture is different than the people that are here. And so what does it feel like to sort of... Uh, be in a place where uh, the tide of the culture and the tide of society is kind of going against um, what I am used to or what I know. And if you remember from some of the, the chapters that we talked about before, um, we talked about how Daniel and his three friends were sort of, they were within the culture. They were working within the government. They were wearing clothes like the Babylonians. They were talking Aramaic, like speaking Aramaic like the Babylonians. But there were certain times where they sort of had to sort of differentiate themselves, right? In chapter one, they had to differentiate themselves by how they eat. In chapter two, they had to differentiate themselves about worshiping the statue and so and so on and so forth. So there was times that they had to differentiate themselves. And Daniel ended up, because he wouldn't worship uh, the, the king, he ended up in the lion's den. And so there are many times that they had to say, you know what, no, here's a line that I have to not cross. I'll, I can be in the culture, I can, I can take part in the culture, but there's a line here that I have to cross. So, if you remember, um, like we said many times, that this is about captivity of the people of Israel. So Daniel was taken captive uh, along with a whole bunch of people of the Israelites, and they were recruited, like I said, to serve in Babylon because they were sort of high-ranking people even uh, within uh, within Israel. So, why did Daniel end up in exile? Like we know, we know what happened. We talked about it that it, that it happened, but why did? We, why did he end up in exile? The book of Daniel doesn't tell you really why it happened or how it happened. It just assumes that you sort of know from the story of Israel, right? So if you remember the story of Israel in a rough format. The people of Israel originated, where did they like sort of start and become a people? In Egypt, right? They were in Egypt. And then God took them out of Egypt in the Exodus and eventually after sort of 40 years traveling in the, in the wilderness to the Promised Land, okay? And they spent 400 years in the Promised Land, basically... Well, but let me take that back. When, they took them out of, when He took them out of Egypt, He took them in the wilderness. And then on Mount Sinai, what did He do with them? He made them a covenant promise, right? He's saying, these are my commands. This is what I expect from you. And here's what you can expect from me, right? I'm going to make you a special people. You're going to be a priestly nation to the rest of the world. And I want you to worship me and only me. This is my covenant promise with you, and I'm gonna make you a great nation. Alright, this is the covenant promise that God made with the people of, of Israel. And you know, the most famous part of the covenant promise probably was the Ten Commandments, okay? But there was a bunch of other laws besides that, but the Ten Commandments were kind of were the most famous one. So on a scale of one to ten, one being, you know, miserable, ten being super awesome, how did the people of Israel do keeping the covenant promises? Yeah, really badly. Right? There's probably like less than less than one. Maybe like if I could say zero. Right? They did a really bad job. The book of the book of the, all the books of like the of the Old Testament from sort of the end of the Torah until, until the end of the Old Testament are basically talking about people of Israel trying to be good, then they're messing up, then God saves them, and then they're trying to be good again, and then they're messing up, and God saves them. You know, and so on and so forth. So eventually, after 400 years of God sort of working with the people of Israel and them not listening, God says, "Okay, enough's enough." I'm going to exile them and into the land of of Babylon. The Babylonians, I'm gonna use King Nebuchadnezzar as my sort of arm of justice and I'm going to have them go and serve the Babylonians. So the King of Babylon comes and God allows them to take the city captive. And just put yourself in this sort of scenario. You're living happily in your home, your family and your friends, in the land that you love, the promised land, all of a sudden an invading army comes decimates everything, kills many people, a lot of the people that you love and care about, and you're left alive as a captive, and you're taken in chains on a long ride all the way to a foreign country, to a place you don't want to go, but you're here now, and there's a different culture, and there's a different language, and you get recruited to serve actually in the government. So it's like the worst of the worst. So that's where Daniel finds himself in this sort of horrible situation. And Daniel, by the way, is if, you, if you've been following along with us, is a really good guy, okay? We haven't really seen Daniel in any of the, the stories and the events that we've, we've been looking at fail ever so far in the stories. Actually this is pretty rare in the Bible. This is rare in the Bible. Even the holy people within the Bible, you see them making mistakes. You see Abraham lying about his wife, Sarah. You see David is famous for all the mistakes he makes. Solomon making lots of mistakes, right? So it's really rare that you see somebody who's like, okay, this person is like genuinely really, really good. It's almost like, you know, when you see that, when you talk about like sort of the people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and uh, David and Solomon, when you tell those stories to children, you sort of take out... The bad things that they do and you just tell them oh here's how David was and he was a wonderful king and blah 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 right but then as you become an adult you say you know what he wasn't really so perfect there were some things that he did wrong and here's what it is and how here's how i can learn from it Daniel's not like that Daniel is fit and made perfect for a children's story there's nothing in the in the book of Daniel that talks about like something wrong that Daniel did okay so put yourself sort of in Daniel's position you've been faithful as faithful as possible to the God of Israel and yet you're sitting in Babylon through no fault of your own. And it's actually because of the prolonged failure and the rebellion and like sort of the, the, the low or wrong moral compass of, the, of sort of your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents that gave in and they started to worship idols and they were unfaithful to God. That's why you are in Babylon. It's, that, it's their fault and you're the one who's sitting here. You're the one whose life's horrible because of it. How do you feel about your life if you're Daniel, you know? You're Daniel, think about if you wake up one decade into the exile, 10 years. Two decades into the exile of Babylon, 20 years. And every day is this sort of battle of, okay, I can try to fit into the culture, but at the same time, it's not really my culture, and the society's not the same as me, and God, they're trying to tell me things that are against my faith and against my principles every day. Things like this are happening. If you're Daniel, how easy would it be for you to just start sort of feeling sorry for yourself? Having pity on yourself. Oh, you know, like like having this sort of victim-martyr complex. Thinking, why am I sitting here because of somebody else in my family's dumb decision? And I'm sitting here and I'm exiled and I'm suffering. And you could easily see how Daniel could maybe foster that sort of mindset. He's a good guy. He doesn't, hasn't done anything wrong. And when, if you think about it, when God's people are sort of a faithful minority, there's a tricky line to sort of walk. Because the book of Daniel is telling us you need to be faithful to our God while you're in a foreign land. But at the same time, there's a, there's a sort of temptation to have a mindset that can come out sort of in the lives of those faithful people. It can be very easy for us to start seeing ourselves as morally superior to the people around me. Right? I'm better than them. It's me and my small group of people and we're following God and everybody else are heathens. Right? They're all the bad people all around me and thank God that he protected me and I'm one of the good people. You know? In fact, I mean, if you can think of other examples and times and places in history where there were small religious minorities that felt of themselves that they were the only ones following God and they look at the dominant culture as evil and they think that they are the only ones who have the voice of truth what becomes in those sort of people what becomes or what comes to their tongues and their attitude with the people that have that sort of mindset what kind of habits do they tend to pick up? How do they communicate to the world at large? Right? They communicate with a sort of bitterness, with a sort of uh, feeling that they're better than, right? I mean, you could sympathize. you can sympathize with it. You wouldn't blame Daniel if he started becoming like that, right? He was really one of the only people who was doing the right thing. If Daniel started becoming angry, accusing, blaming everybody else, if he started to maybe create distance between him and the country, or even some of his people, that's a, a mindset that can very easily or could have easily formed within God's faithful people. And so we're gonna see, what does Daniel do? How does he react? How is he feeling? Okay, that's what chapter 9 really is all about. So we'll read from Daniel chapter 9. It says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those... Oh, so excuse me, I, let me let me get back to the, right in the beginning of the chapter. In the first year of Darius, of the son, the son of Adaxerxes of the lineage of Medes, who was made king over the realm of Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer, supplications, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Okay, this is the beginning of the chapter. What is Daniel saying? Daniel's saying, I was reading the Bible what I'm saying, I'm reading the Bible, and I realize within the Bible, he's actually reading from the book of Jeremiah. I'll, I'll go back for a second. Daniel, when he was taken captive, he was a young man. Okay, we don't know exactly how old he was, but he was a young man. Maybe in his late teens, maybe his early 20s. Okay. If you, if you read the first couple of verses of the book of, of chapter 9, the book of, of Daniel, and you are sort of like a Bible nerd or a history nerd, you can figure out how many years it's been because he names the king. And so it, and he, there was the king that was there before, Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's talking about a different king. So actually biblical scholars tell us 50 years now has passed since the time he was exiled till Daniel chapter 9. Okay, so he was a young man and now it's been like 50 years and he's reading in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? Because he starts, he's starting to wonder, you know, how long is this going to go on? How long are we going to be here in exile? How long is God going to punish us or make us suffer? Okay? So he goes to Jeremiah and he learns that from the book of Jeremiah that the exile is going to last, or he thinks it's going to last, 70 years. Where did he read that? He reads that actually in Jeremiah chapter 25. There's a verse that says, like, the Lord is speaking to Israel. And he says, because you've not listened to my words, I'm going to summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and surrounding nations. And I'll completely destroy the meaning of the king of Babylon's will, and the king of Babylon will be an agent of God's justice." So he's reading from Jeremiah, and he reads and continues, he's like, okay, it's, it's gonna be 70 years. He figures out it's going to be 70 years. So he's reading this, and it's been already how long? Maybe like about 50 years. So he's thinking to himself, okay, within 15 or 20 years we, we might be going back. We're going back to Jerusalem. So he's saying there is a chance in my own lifetime I might be able to go back. I mean, I might go back in a wheelchair, but I'm gonna go back. You know, I might make it. That'll be good. And so what does he do when he when he figures that out that he fears that he that he's gonna that he might go back? He says this prayer. He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant. Oh, I'm sorry, right before that. He says, and I pro- and I prayed to the Lord, made my confession and said. And this is his confession. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said. So go back, right before I read the confession, go back to the uh, imaginative scenario, putting yourself in Daniel's shoes. The years are finally over. My ancestors were terrible. And I can find I can go back to the city I love. Instead of starting feeling bad for myself, What he actually does is he says, I'm going to make a confession. That's what verse 4 says. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Confession for what? What did Daniel do? What has Daniel done wrong? So he's processed these whole series of events and he doesn't feel bitterness. He's actually ready to confess. So what does he say? What is his confession? He says, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to You, but to to us, shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us that we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. There's a lot of really, really, really nice things going on in this beautiful confession. A lot of, actually, lessons that we can learn about the practice of confession. But I just want to point out a couple things. One is, there is something at the heart of Daniel's prayer about God's character that shapes Daniel. How he says the prayer. There's something in the mindset of Daniel Or there's something that allows Daniel to not get into the mindset of being this sort of victim-martyr. There's one main thing that he emphasizes about God's character in this prayer. He repeated it actually more than once. He repeated it three times. A characteristic of God. He repeated it three times in this prayer. What is the characteristic of God that he mentions in this prayer? Three times he brought up the righteousness of God. Okay, in case you missed them, here they are. Okay, he brought up the righteousness of God three times. He began in the early part, he says, Lord, you are righteous. And because you're righteous, that's why we're here today. We're the ones who are ashamed, we're the ones who sort of bailed on you and we failed to be faithful. And so because of that, the Lord brought disaster on us because He's righteous. Later in the prayer, look what he does here. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. So the first two are like, you're righteous, and so we were punished. And the third one says, you're righteous, so you should have mercy on me. He's saying that this characteristic of God is the reason He punished and the reason He should forgive. Not because we ourselves are righteous, but because He's righteous. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Right? So, if we just think about this, this is a a profound aspect of sort of God's character that Daniel explores here, and this is actually the reason why Daniel is able to be humble and Daniel's able to not be sort of like a victim in what's going on. Who has sinned according to Daniel's prayer? Who sinned according to Daniel's prayer? We. He says we. He clones himself. What's that about? Why? It's because he's, he's he's grasping something else, something more important. I want to go back and talk about maybe like the definition of righteous. right? Righteous is the sort of word that nobody uses in sort of like regular talk, right? You don't speak and say like, for example, uh, my neighbor let me borrow my, his tools so he's really righteous, right? you you not say stuff like that. We don't really talk like righteous and righteousness as sort of a word that we, only has in English a sort of religious connotation. But if I, were to, if I were to ask you, what does righteous mean? I think most of you would probably come up to an idea of saying like, it means that they're morally good. Right? The person is sort of morally good on on one level or another. But morally good, you know, you could use a different word. You don't have to use righteous, right? You could use nice or pleasant or good, you know. What's the difference between righteous? So the word righteous at its core is describing someone's character, but not just in and of themselves. It describes someone's character that you see demonstrated in sort of a relationship. How they treat other people. It's a relationship word. So you can't be righteous by yourself, you're righteous towards others, okay? So the only way you know someone is righteous is if they're righteous towards you, right? I'll give you an example of how can I understand this, okay? Because righteousness is, the meaning of righteousness means to being in sort of a right relationship with somebody, to sort of do right by them, you know, if you ever heard that phrase before. Let's say you have a person, a guy, Okay? And he's formed a relationship with lots of different people. And in some of the, one of the relationships, for example, he's a husband. And another relationship, he's a father. And so he displays his righteousness. How does he display his righteousness as a husband or as a, as a father? Well, he can display his righteousness by being faithful to his family, being committed to them, being present, loving, right? Being a good parent. These are the kind of behaviors that would be, this is a right relationship, he's righteous towards his, his wife and his children. So let's say that that person is also an entrepreneur, he's, he has a business, okay, he's running a business. If I say to myself, how is he righteous towards his employees? You wouldn't say he's righteous towards his employees because he reads a book with them at night and cuddles up with them, right? That's not the relationship, the relationship is different. How could he be righteous towards his employees? He pays them a fair wage, he gives them a good time off, he's generous with them, whatever. That could be how he's righteous towards his employees. And the same thing, like if he's a neighbor, right? How is he righteous towards his neighbors? You know, maybe he, he makes them cookies and brings them over. He, lets, he mows their lawn for them when he, you know, they need it. You know, that's how he's righteous towards his neighbor. So the overall trait may differ depending on sort of the different kinds of relationships. And like I said, it's sort of like... To do right by, right? In the English, you say, if someone's going to do right by me, right? That's how they can be righteous. That's righteousness. So here, so what Daniel is saying here is he said, Lord, you displayed righteousness, which causes us to be ashamed. You've been faithful. You've done right by Israel after you rescued us out of slavery, brought us into a land, even though we didn't deserve it and what have we as israel done towards you for four centuries we violated your law broke the covenant that we made with you you're righteous and we're not righteous then he goes and says lord you brought disaster upon us because you are righteous so god has done right by israel by bringing disaster on them for the 400 years of breaking the covenant what does that mean What kind of righteousness is this? This is not the righteousness of uh, a husband and wife. It's not the righteousness of a business, not the righteousness of a neighbor. Right, it's sort of a righteousness of a judge. Let me me give you an example. Let's say, okay, you're done with Vespers today. You walk out, go to the parking lot, and you don't find your car. Car's not there. Three weeks later, you find your car, it's all uh, battered up, and like everything was stolen out of it. Someone hijacked it, took it, whatever. And then you go to court. And the judge comes, and he has the guy in front of him, like, and it's a clear case that he for sure did it, and all this kind of stuff. And the judge says to him, you know what, you're probably having a bad day, maybe you really needed the car, it seemed pretty appealing to you, why don't you pay 200 bucks and we'll just call it even. Okay? We'll just call it even. If the judge does that, did the judge do right by you? No. Did the judge do right by the community? No. He didn't do right. So, so, so righteousness for the judge is different because it depends on the relationship, right? You can't let somebody go without hardly any consequences. So for a judge to show righteousness means bringing serious consequences on evil and on destructive behavior. That's what's right. The judge is doing right by you, the victim. The judge is doing right by the community. He's doing right by the law. So that's why Daniel can say Jerusalem was destroyed because God is righteous, and it actually wouldn't be good on God's part if He just let Jerusalem to continue and what they're doing without any accountability, without any justice. So now we're getting sort of into the psychology of why Daniel isn't going to have sort of a pity party, have a vic- be this victim martyr, even though he might it might have been like sort of personally painful for him even though it might have ripped apart his, his own life. He recognizes that the people of Israel had it coming. It's actually God's right that God brought justice on their evil, on their destructive behavior. But that's not the end of God's righteousness. That's not the end of God's righteousness. It's his last use of the word righteousness here. He says, Lord, listen, or pr- I'm praying, just like you were righteous, up above on the first example, just like you were righteous with the second example, to bring disaster. I'm also asking you now, because you are righteous, to forgive us. Not because we're righteous. I'm asking you because you are the kind of God who does right by people. You brought consequences on our evil. And now because you do right by people, forgive us. So he, what Daniel saying is, God's righteousness compels him to do justice, And God's righteousness apparently compels him also to forgive and to restore. So if you have this conception of God in Christianity as sort of the basic storyline as God made the world and He made people and He gave them commandments, and you better do this or else I'm going to roast you. If that's your basic view of God in the Bible, I would urge you to actually read the Bible. And you'll discover actually that God is very, very different. You discover that God is a God who, He has this incredible world that He's created for people, full of potential, and He gives the, the stewardship of the world to human beings, and He tells them upfront, you know, this is how it's gonna go really well for you, and this is how it's gonna go not so well. And Israel for four centuries are running their ship right into the ground. And if you think about a greater scare, how long has humanity been doing that? (laughs) Longer than that, since the beginning. So what is God supposed to do with this? So what the Bible tells us is that God brings consequences on human evil, but he always does so matched and in tandem with a promise. Right, he made a promise to the people, his covenant. This is what he said in Genesis 12. I will make you, he said this to Abraham. He picked Abraham out of every people. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he made a covenant promise with Abraham that he's going to bless. He's going to restore and heal the world. Not at the expense of his justice, but because of it. And so this is the story even of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees himself, Christ sees himself as a part of this righteousness, of this justice. It's very similar, for example, to like sort of parenting, right? So uh, maybe I have a lot of parenting images for me just because I, you know, I, have, I live with two crazy kids and they're like doing crazy things all the time at the home. And sometimes sort of they're crazy with each other and they're fighting. And one of them could maybe like steal the Legos from the other one and push the other one down and make them cry. If I was was to be righteous towards them, am I righteous towards them if I sort of sit back, let them do their thing and leave them to their own devices to fight, to, to quarrel, to push, to call names? Am I doing right by them as a father? No, right, because they're gonna grow up thinking like this is the way to act. This is perfectly fine to treat people this way. So it's not fine, I have to create an environment where they experience consequences for their destructive behavior. That's righteousness. That's bringing justice. But is my only role as a parent to sort of bring down the hammer of justice when the kids do something wrong? No. Right? So because to be a healthy human being, what I also need to help to teach them is that even when they've broken or ruptured a relationship between them, that there's a way forward. Yes, there are consequences, but there's a way forward through healing of the relationship it's teaching them how to forgive and how to confess to each other and ask for forgiveness and accept apologies, right? Can I say I'm doing right as a father if I do not help them restore the relationship? Once, you know, Naomi knocks Cyril down to the ground, if I just don't let them and they just hate each other for the rest of their lives because of it. Am I doing right as a father? No. I have to teach them to restore the relationship. So somehow both of these concepts are in Daniel's head that God is righteous by letting us sit in the mess that we've made ourselves, by exiling the people, but God isn't really fully righteous until He does something to deal with it, to restore it, to heal, to bless. He says you're righteous for bringing disaster and now you're righteous because you're going to forgive us. And if you don't forgive and help us restore and figure this out, then you really haven't kept your promise. Which means you're not righteous, you haven't done right. God's righteousness is His justice and His mercy. Because He promised that that's what He would do. They aren't in contradiction with each other, they actually work together. They work perfectly together. There's another thing in the prayer that is really important to notice. Whose sin is Daniel confessing? It says ours. We've sinned. We've done wrong. And like I said before, you think about it, you say, well, Daniel hasn't done anything wrong. What Daniel is talking about in his confession, he's saying, when I look at the profound beauty and the righteousness of God, that no matter what, he always does right by his relationships. This humbles Daniel. So instead of being tempted to sort of feel sorry for himself, And view himself maybe as morally superior, as maybe starting to take an attitude of us versus them, the Babylonians versus the Jewish people, the holy people versus the Gentiles. He views himself as a sort of a participant in this imperfection of this unrighteousness. He may have contributed to it in a different way than what he's talking about, right? He never maybe worshipped other gods, maybe he never made his children walk through fire for gods. But there's other ways that he was unrighteous towards God. And especially in front of God's goodness and generosity of God's righteousness, he steps back and he's just, he humbles himself. And he says, this is our mess, our humanity's mess. That's how you know, if you know someone has truly grasped God's righteousness, that they're humble. If they've truly grasped God's righteousness, then they're going to be humble. They don't view themselves as better than other people. Even though they're trying to be faithful in a foreign land, they never point the finger. You never see them pointing a finger, accusing, blaming. They're not like, look at those infidels who worship other idols and do whatever. You never see the three friends or Daniel saying anything like that at all. A true grasp of who God is humbles It reminds me actually of somebody in the New Testament. One of the most faithful people who follow Christ. St. Right? Paul, maybe you heard of him. You remember St. Paul was writing at that towards the end of his life to um, one of his like disciples who became a bishop, Timothy, and he's writing to him and he's saying, you know I've done a lot of really good things and I've established a lot of churches in a lot of different places but I consider myself the worst sinner the chief of sinners and you look at st paul when you read this You there who why if if that's where st paul is where am i right it's not that saint paul hates himself it's that he's really grasped the beauty of god's righteousness and this humbles him so what's god's response to the prayer god's response to the confession It says now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and, preventing my supplic- and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening, morning, uh, evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, if you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. This is the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Remember Daniel is sitting here, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, hoping that the exile is almost over because Jeremiah says it's going to be 70 years. And then when he prays this prayer, yes, God, we've sinned against you, I'm humbling myself, we've ruined this so badly, please forgive us, the 70 years are almost up. And Daniel hopes that the exile is over, that this is going to be the most painful experience is almost done. And what is the response to the prayer? So it says, in the verse, 70 weeks. In, in Hebrew, the word weeks and the word seven is the same. Okay? So some translations will say 70 weeks, and other translations will say 70 sevens. Okay? Just depends on the translation. So, after all that stuff, what God is saying to him, he's saying, actually, I have 70 times seven time for you. How long is that? You're good at math. 490 years. God is telling Daniel, 70 years is not going to cut it. I have 490 years for you and your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. If you're Daniel, <laughs> how do you feel now? Right? What, what, what am I doing? You thought it was 70 years. But I'm actually telling you it's 70 times 7. You thought maybe you'd go back to Jerusalem in a wheelchair, but now your kids and your great-grandkids and your great-great-great-grandkids are probably not going to get there either. Right? What's the point? He's saying has the exile to Jerusalem fully dealt with the break of the covenant that they did to God? No. It hasn't. Did the 70 years, as horrible as they end up being, Are they going to fully atone for Israel's sin for breaking the covenant with God? No. So he's saying apparently that the distortion of humanity and the brokenness and sin of Israel runs so deep that even the 70-year exile is just going to be the first part of a much longer experience for God's judgment. It's not good news if you're Daniel. But here's where it goes, it continues, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven sevens, and 62 weeks, 62 sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So if you you do that, that math is a little bit harder to do. That math is 483 years. And Matthew's 483 years. And he says, And after 62 weeks, after 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. They, the end of it shall be with a flood and shall until the end of the war, desolations are determined. But in the middle of the week, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be he who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I know that part is very confusing. But let's try to break it down. Has the 70 years fully dealt with the sin of Israel? God is saying no. Right? He's saying 70 weeks, 70 times 7, 490 years I need to finish this transgression. The 70 years of that you're gonna be exiled is not going to be enough. There's gonna be a longer period. And at the end, near the end of the 490 years, an anointed one, right? He uses the word Messiah, will come. And he will be cut off. And he's going to be connected with this really bad ruler. And you'll recognize it, sort of. You we were here a couple weeks ago, or yes, last week when we talked about like the beast, you're gonna be connected to the beast. And there's going to be some sort of face-off and the anointed one is going to die. And then Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And this is how God is going to put an end to sin and finish transgression and atone for Israel's evil, for all the bad things that they did. This prophecy refers actually to Christ himself. When he came as the anointed one. And what they're referring to here is his own death by crucifixion. And the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 is, is talking about the brokenness of the sin of Israel runs so deeply that just the exile, even if it's 70 years and the exile is really bad and the 70 years are terrible, it doesn't deal with the heart of the problem. There's still something left that God's righteousness, His eternal righteousness needs to do or accomplish To fully finish the transgression, to put an end to the transgression, to fully cover and atone for Israel's evil. There's some act yet to be done from Daniel's point of view, from God's point of view, to fulfill God's righteous justice. Remember, if God is good, if He's righteous, He has to expose and name all the screwed up stuff that's inside of the people. And He's not righteous if He doesn't do that. But at the same time, God's righteousness is His promise and His commitment. To rescue and to bring blessing, to show mercy, to forgive. That's also righteousness. And So Daniel chapter 9 is saying that there's something yet to happen in the future where God's justice and His mercy are going to show and His righteousness will meet perfectly together to deal with evil. So I'm sure you can't imagine a greater prediction than the moment of the cross, right? The cross is exactly the moment that what's inside of humanity really is exposed. Because if you think just from a historical perspective, if you think just from a historical perspective, our Lord Jesus Christ falsely accused and executed by one of the most sophisticated justice systems in the world. And it's not only that our Lord Jesus Christ was an innocent man, he was a man that was known for only doing good things, healing the sick, helping the poor, And yet, one of the most ancient religious traditions and one of the most sophisticated justice systems in the world at the time ends up kneeling the Son of God to the cross. And that moment in history, you really sort of understand what's happening. It's not just some distant thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's an event that exposes all of us, that reveals God's righteousness, and like Daniel should humble all of us. I didn't, just like Daniel, I didn't maybe worship idols. I didn't maybe nail Jesus to the cross. But if I really understand God's righteousness, like Daniel, I can come to the cross and I can recognize I'm responsible too. I'm a contributor, just like the Romans were, just like the high priest was. We're all contributors to this world. We are part of the human condition. We're part of it, we're not better, we're not worse. We're broken human beings. And the only hope we have, the only hope we have is God's righteousness. That he's gonna show us what's wrong with us and he'll deal with our evil in a way that doesn't completely destroy us but actually saves us, right? This is the good news of what happens on the cross that God names our evil, deals with our evil, and deals with it in such a way that doesn't completely destroy us. That He's still there to bless. It's not because we are righteous. It's not because we're somehow better. It's because God is righteous. Which means He's just. Which means He's committed to restoring and to healing the world. So we've all had ways that we've failed. Ways that we've been inconsistent. And that we've maybe compromised ourselves as disciples of Christ, there are ways that we've contributed to the world in a way that the right response for us is to confess, to repent and to confess in front of God and to remember that he offered his love and righteousness in and through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Daniel chapter 9 is about. I would encourage you to, to, to read again the confession of Daniel chapter 9 and make it your own. And to look at the to look at the prophecy at the end of Daniel chapter nine to understand how the Messiah fits perfectly in uh, to the prophecy and glory be to our God forever and ever, Amen.